My name is Peter Gettler. I have the distinct honor and privilege of being the president of the Cato Institute. I have three additional honors this evening. The first is to welcome you all here to the Heideck Auditorium in the Cato Institute, where we work to uh, advance public policy based on the, our cornerstone values of free markets, individual liberty, limited government, and peace. The uh, second honor I have tonight is to uh, mention Joseph uh, K. McLaughlin, for whom this lecture series is named. Joe was a longtime benefactor of the Cato Institute for over 20 years. He was a world-renowned cancer epidemiologist who in 1994 was the founder and long-serving president of the International Epidemiology Institute, and he also served as an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. In addition to his background as a scientist of the first rank, I only met Joe once, but those who know him well tell me that he had an incredibly wide range of intellectual interests. He was a true Renaissance man in this regard, uh, a particularly overused term, but one that I think is quite appropriate here. His interests ran the gamut from geography to all forms of science, genetics, film noir, the arts. And uh, the, this lecture series was designed through the generous uh, support of his wife, Jean Rosenthal, who's with us tonight in the front row, along with uh, his daughter, Allison, and son-in-law, Rob. But this series is designed to mirror Joe's wide-ranging uh, intellectual interests and our first lecture about a year ago featured Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia. Tonight, I'll have the privilege of introducing uh, Mario Vargas Llosa. And our next uh, lecture in this series will be in March, uh, in March on March 6th, when uh, Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker will join us to discuss a book he will be releasing uh, between, between now and then. So Gene, thank you so much for your generous support that has allowed us to honor Joe's memory in such an appropriate way. <laughs> Probably the biggest threat to liberty around the world today is authoritarian populism. Popula populism is confrontational. It's divisive. It sets people of a country, the quote unquote, true people of a country, uh, often in a very ugly and dangerous way against a segment of the country that is represented as the enemy of the people. And of course, of course, it serves the political and personal ends of a demagogue who represents himself or herself as the true representative of the real people. Latin America has produced seemingly countless populist regimes over the years with the one initiated by Hugo Chavez in Venezuela being the most recent emblematic example. But as a number of countries of Latin America have cured themselves of this affliction, the disease has spread to places as diverse as Turkey, China, Russia, Greece, and Hungary. Populism has played, indeed is playing, a prominent role in politics of the United States on both the right and the left, but also of the UK, Spain, France, and other European democracies. 
The threat of populism affects both rich and poor countries alike and is already eroding liberties that have long been part of global liberalism, including free speech, free trade, greater integration, freedom of choice, and immigration. On the occasion of the publication in Spanish of an important book of essays loosely translated as The Cataclysm of Populism, it is therefore fitting that today's Joseph K. McLaughlin lecture focus on that topic, and that none other than Mario Vargas Llosa will discuss the topic of populism and the book, first with some remarks of his own, and then along with his son Alvaro Vargas Llosa, the editor of the book, Cato's Gabriela Calderon de Burgos, who contributed a chapter, and Cato's Ian Vasquez, the director of Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, who will moderate. And he'll also introduce Alvaro and Gabriela. So the third honor I have tonight is to be able to introduce the great Peruvian writer and Nobel laureate in literature, Mario Vargas Llosa. He is probably Latin America's most well-known public intellectual, its most prominent classical liberal, and without a doubt, the region's foremost advocate of liberty and liberal democracy. Since the 1960s, when Vargas Llosa became a key figure in the so-called Latin American boom in literature, generations of people in the Spanish-speaking world have been exposed to his novels, his essays, and his political activism. He writes some of the world's best literature, which always redeems the dignity of the individual, and he writes about public policy as well. Influenced by the work of Friedrich Hayek, Isaiah Berlin, and Karl Popper, his three biggest intellectual influences, Vargas Llosa has spent decades making the case for freedom in all of its dimensions, economic, civil, and political. All of this is unusual for a Latin American intellectual or indeed for an intellectual in any part of the world. His integrity has allowed Vargas Llosa to effectively condemn authoritarianism of both the right and of the left. Indeed, he was one of the few Latin American intellectuals to condemn the Cuban dictatorship decades ago. And in 1990, he charged that the PRI, the Institutional Revolutionary Party that had ruled Mexico since 1929, constituted the perfect dictatorship. But for Mario Vargas Llosa, freedom is not just an abstract concept. He is a man of letters, yes, but also a man of action. And he has not hesitated to get into the political fray. Famously, in 1990, he ran for president of Peru on a libertarian platform after the president at the time had ruined the country with socialist policies. Vargas Llosa lost the election but won the battle of ideas. The far-reaching market reforms he advocated were adopted, as eventually was his advocacy of democracy, making Peru one of the Latin America's success stories admired throughout the region. And David, I have, think I have a few slides I was going to show that uh, was an illustration for me of what uh, Mr. Vargas Llosa has meant to, uh, to the people of Peru. I visited a few years ago, this is Villa El Salvador, outside of Lima is a, uh, uh, a settlement of, I think, about 600,000 people that began in 1970 as a settlement of informal housing um, for, uh, developed by some refugees and is a, a very vibrant, vibrant community now of permanent structures. But I visited here, I met some, some gentlemen. The next slide, David. 
I met some uh, fellow liberals who uh, seek to teach people in the settlement in Villa El Salvador about freedom and liberalism. And this I'm showing in their house, which you can tell it's uh, probably not large by our standards, but from the previous picture, you can see it's one of the swankiest homes in Villa El Salvador. They are uh, building a radio station so they can uh, broadcast throughout the city um, the, uh, the ideas of, uh, of liberalism and, and freedom. And in their, their living room, they've set it up, as, their living room is now a classroom where they lecture and teach people about, about freedom and classical liberalism. And the last picture I'll show you, this is, uh, this is a father and son. And these are the uh, additional three people who hosted me. One is a libertarian activist. Um, but the man on the, uh, on the left is the man who I it was in the previous picture with his son, uh, who have spent so much of their lives trying to spread, um, spread the word of, of liberalism. And the reason I raise this in this context is when I met this man, the first thing he told me, he was so proud that he had worked on the 1990 presidential campaign of Mario Vargas Llosa. And he proudly, in order to show me his liberal uh, credentials and bona fides, he showed me a picture of himself with Mario Vargas Llosa that was signed by you when, uh, when they were working on the presidential campaign 27 years ago. And uh, I could tell he was just almost 30 years later, still so proud to have this picture of, uh, of uh, uh, a memento of the work that you had done together. Um, it's difficult to overestimate Mario Vargas Llosa's uh, influence. Though he's not returned to politics, he remains actively engaged in the policy debate and the battle of ideas, especially as president of the International Foundation for Liberty, which every year organizes numerous meetings, debates, and major events in the Americas and Europe. He is a friend of those fighting for liberty in the most difficult places, like Venezuela or Cuba, and is a constant thorn in the side of authoritarians, never afraid to directly confront them. And I'm proud to say he's a great friend of the Cato Institute. It's with great pleasure that I welcome Mario Vargas Llosa back to Cato to discuss one of the biggest issues of our current times. Thank you very much. Very kind. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much to the Cato Institute for its hospitality. Thank you very much to its president for his very kind and generous words of presentation. The book that I am uh, going to talk about, El Estallido del, del Populismo, um, I think it's uh, important in our days, in which the worst and the most dangerous enemy of democracy is not communism anymore, but populism. I think populism has replaced uh, this great uh, enemy that we had for so many, many years. Communism. Uh, has uh, destroyed uh, itself by its total incapacity to fulfill all the uh, expectations that were put into this system to bring prosperity, justice, uh, happiness, uh, culture to a, a society. 
what uh, uh, survive of communism nowadays, North Korea, Venezuela, very painful models of uh, how a society can be destroyed internally because of the totally wrong policies in economy, in culture, in uh, social issues, uh, uh, etc. But populism is much more difficult to fight because it's not an ideology, not a system with principles, with ideas that we, that we can refute uh, uh, rationally. No, populism uh, is something extremely confused because it's a kind of illness in the democratic system, a kind of uh, corruption of democratic uh, values and, and principles that can attack in a very discreet manner at the beginning, uh, very well established uh, democracies uh, or new democracies, still very uh, young and uh, uh, without deep roots in, 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 in society. Uh, that is one of the characteristics of, of populism. Populism can attack uh, very strong traditional democracies uh, uh, in countries uh, where we believe democratic values are deeply uh, assumed by uh, the majority of, 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 of society, and also New democracies in third world countries, democracies that are still uh, fighting uh, to uh, produce the, the, the results uh, of good uh, economic policies, uh, of uh, in intelligent uh, reforms. Uh, how? Can we define populism? I, I think that we can, we can say that populism is something that sacrifices the, the future of a country, of a society, for a very transitory present, a present uh, uh, that seems uh, to solve all the, the, the problems when, in fact, all the problems are becoming much more difficult to, to, to face and, 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 and solve because of the populist uh, policies. One essential ingredient of populism is nationalism. Uh, nationalism is a 
kind of ideology that only in colonial countries, occupied countries by empires, uh, by imperialistic policies, has momentarily a progressive uh, uh, symptom or, or, or progressive uh, policies, the liberation of an occupied uh, society by a foreign army. Yes, this, this seems uh, the road to, to, to progress, uh, uh, the liberation of this kind of slavery that a military occupation of a, of a society represents. But there are very few cases in our days of this kind of uh, progressive nationalism. The kind of nationalism that we have now is a very reactionary movement which pretend to regress a society to towards a past that, and this is a fiction, of course, represents a kind of perfect society. And there is no country that is totally vaccinated against this kind of fiction that suddenly uh, becomes a kind of uh, enthusiastic, uh, uh, ideology that uh, suddenly uh, is adopted by a, by a society. I can give you a an, an very recent example. Britain. Britain is probably the oldest democracy in the world. Britain is a country that is, in a way, the incarnation of democracy. How was possible for a country like Britain to vote for Brexit? How was possible? I was in, in, in London the, the days, the previous days to, the, to this uh, referendum. And I couldn't believe what I saw and what I heard during this debate, the kind of uh, grotesque demagoguery uh, which was set on television, on the radio, by the uh, defenders of, of, of the Brexit, uh, the kind of accusations against Europe, against Brussels, I remember Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson saying in the, in the BBC, talking to the uh, tax uh, uh, se dice? the tax uh, uh, payers, the taxpayers in, in Britain. Do you know what Brussels does with the taxes that you pay? Well, I'm going to tell you. Brussels 
subsidize with your money the corrida in Spain. What a grotesque uh, fantasy. What a ridiculous invention. Uh, the corrida was never subsidized by anybody, only by the aficionados to the, to the corrida. But these kind of lies were effective in a country that I thought was the most democratic country in the world. Well, this kind of chauvinism, this kind of nationalism produced the Brexit, a tragedy for Europe and particularly for Britain. Look what is happening with Brexit. Nobody knows how they are going to implement something that they decided by a significant majority uh, What happened in Spain very recently, you have probably followed the way in which an independentist movement has uh, developed in Catalonia, uh, a movement people who wanted to become independent from Spain. Millions of, of Catalans, not a majority, but several millions were in favor of this uh, crazy, absurd idea of becoming independent. Now, in our days, a country like Spain, which is totally integrated in the very generous and magnificent project, which is the construction of, uh, of Europe, a project that is already giving extraordinary manifestations of success. For the first time in history, Europe has had 70 years of peace, no wars among the European countries. How was possible? Catalonia was not independent one day in the whole Spanish history. How? I lived five years in, 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 in Barcelona in the 70s. At that time, nationalists were just a group of very old people. And uh, the progressive uh, uh, Catalans uh, looked these nationalists with great uh, irony, you know, uh, as something of the past, something of the, of the caves, uh, of the prehistory. But nationalism has been working very hard to seduce the new generations, uh, using the school as an instrument to develop the fiction that uh, Catalonia had a past in which it was happy because it was independent and it was prosperous and it was just because it was an egalitarian kind of, uh, of, of society. And this has created a very, very serious problem in Spain, in Europe, and of course, principally in Catalonia. Look Latin America. Populism has produced a monstrosity, which is Venezuela. Venezuela potentially 
probably the most prosperous country in, in Latin America, had a very strong democracy, a real democracy. And for 40 years, for 40 years, the, this uh, uh, Venezuelan democracy worked and, and worked positively, creating institutions that uh, produce prosperity from a, an economic point of, point of view, and also uh, a way of living in which uh, tolerance was extremely important. Um, coexistence in diversity, which is a great democratic ideal, was a reality in, in Venezuela. Uh, and during those 40 years, Venezuela had very good, very good uh, presidents, uh, uh, presidents and governments who helped very much the Latin Americans who wanted democracy for their countries, who were fighting against the dictators that in those years were practically everywhere in, 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 in Latin America. What happened? Why Venezuela, who was advancing, progressing, suddenly started to regress and following the crazy demagoguery of Commandante Chavez and what happened? Well, it was a fiction that took control and uh, uh, deter all the good ideas that until then had been moving forward the, the, the country. I am not against fictions. I, as, as you know, I have spent much of my, my life writing fictions and uh, reading fictions and uh, I love nothing more than a good, good persuasive fiction. But in politics, fictions are extremely dangerous. It's very important for fictions to be in literature. In literature, fictions don't lie. Fictions present themselves as fictions. When you open a novel, you know that this is not the real world. This is the world of literature. But in politics, when fiction presents itself, presents itself as history, the real history. And these lies can seduce societies and, and, and produce the kind of catastrophe, terrible cataclysm that is living Venezuela in our days. What is terrible with populism is that populism appeals to the uh, weakest aspect of the uh, human personality. We don't like sacrifices. And if uh, a demagogue tells us that the problems of a country can be solved without sacrifices and very rapidly, taking certain measures, we tend to believe them. Because how wonderful, without sacrifices, 
we have prosperity, we have justice, we have progress. Uh, These kind of, of lies are very easily introduced in a, in a society in particular moments in which uh, there is a crisis, there is a certain uncertitude about the, uh, or the present of the, 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 immediate, uh, the immediate future. Uh, and it's particularly in that moment when it still is possible to change things that we must act and act very um, uh, in a, with great determination, uh, uh, refuting these lies and um, destroying this, uh, this fiction. Well, the book that we are presenting this evening is exactly what he does. It presents different cases, Latin America, Spain, United States, uh, in which Different, different authors who know well these different countries explain the way in which democracy has been corrupted and uh, has contracted this illness of populism and the terrible effects that this is having in different countries. You, you will see in this, uh, in this book which is very, very interesting, how in certain societies, populism takes the mask of the left. In others, the mask of the, the right. The language varies a lot. And the enemies of, of, of populism uh, seem to be very different. It depends very much of the social and economic context in which populism appears. But what is absolutely similar are the effects of populism in a, in a society. Impoverishment, chaos, corruption, and terrible violence. The cases are very well uh, explained. And some of the essays are uh, fantastic fictions. For example, the case of Comandante Ortega in Nicaragua. Extraordinary case. He was the leader of the Sandinismo who fought against Somoza, a criminal, a dictator. Um, he was the president of Nicaragua during the years of Sandinism, uh, he contributed very much to destroy, you know, what still uh, should survive in, 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 in Nicaragua post uh, Somoza. And then the story of Comandante Ortega, uh, the incarnation of, of populism in, 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 cent in Central America, has been moving him to be close for, to the entrepreneurs, to the church, and finally uh, to very different and contradictory groups. The essay by Sergio Ramirez, a wonderful writer, is really magnificent because you, 
you see how, in, in the case of the Commandante Ortega, there are no principles. There are no convictions. What uh, we see is an appetite for power that permits him to commit the most incredible contradictions and treasons, uh, to be loyal and disloyal only for practical, practical reasons. Uh, and he has managed to establish a kind of uh, regime that moves uh, in, in practical terms only for the survival of the corrupt dictator, dictator that is uh, uh, Mr. Uh, the Comandante or Ortega. Uh, the case of uh, Venezuela is uh, also tragically dis described in all the, the details in which we saw the kind of suicide committed by a, a, a country that was uh, tempted and seduced by uh, the lies of, uh, of populism. But there is also very encouraging examples of uh, societies which resisted populism and uh, changed the course of, of, of history in the good sense. The case of Chile, for example. There are two essays, very, very interesting essays, written by former revolutionaries. One of them, even very close, of terrorists who change their minds and discover democracy after being living in, in the violence of the, of, the, of the extreme, extreme left and um, after uh, the destruction or almost destruction of, of, of their country because, because populism. Uh, I recommend uh, very, very, very much this, this, this book because you can see, reading the different essays, uh, the way in which populism adapts itself to the different conditions of, uh, of countries. Uh, and uh, although the conclusion is always the same, chaos, poverty, uh, violence, the ways in which populism op operates are so different. Uh, we need to be uh, prepared to face populism because uh, uh, in our days we have seen how the most solid, what we thought, the more, what we thought were the more solid societies uh, for democracy, for freedom, uh, can evolve suddenly uh, in such a way that populism suddenly replaces uh, the, 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 the real world with its, its fantasies and uh, start to produce uh, division, uh, demagoguery instead of, of, of reason, uh, and, and fictions uh, instead of, of truth. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't want to say more uh, with my horrendous English, 
uh, and I am sure that uh, in the panel that uh, will, will come, you will uh, get much more interesting ideas about uh, El Estallido del Populismo. Thank you very much. Good evening. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and it's my pleasure now to, to welcome our panel to discuss this, this issue. First, uh, we'll introduce Alvaro Vargas Llosa, who is the editor of this book. This, by the way, is the book. It exists. Uh, only in Spanish uh, for the moment. Only in Spanish for the moment, but I think it'd be good to, to translate. Alvaro is a, a very prolific uh, writer, uh, though unlike his father of non-fiction uh, rather than uh, fiction, he writes um, essays, uh, books. He writes about current issues and public policy, though sometimes it seems like you're writing about fiction. But, <laughs> Um, <clears throat> he writes uh, weekly columns for, prominent, for important newspapers in Latin America and in Spain. He is the author of numerous books, including uh, Global Crossings, which is a book on immigration, uh, liberty for Latin America, and uh, the bestseller, to which he co-authored, Guide to the Latin, Perfect Latin American Idiot, which explodes a lot of myths that you always hear in Latin America about the market, about democracy, about globalization, and so on. He's also a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and is really one of the most prominent advocates of, of liberty in Latin America. Gabriela Calderón de Burgos, my colleague uh, at the Cato Institute, is also joining us from Ecuador, where she lives. She is the editor of elcato.org, which is the Spanish language uh, website of the Cato Institute. She's a research associate here. Uh, she is a weekly columnist for El Universo, which is Ecuador's biggest and most important newspaper, and she contributed a chapter to this book on Ecuador. And of course, Mario Vargas Llosa, uh, thank you for joining us and welcome back to all of you. If you want to talk about populism, what better than a panel with Latin Americans? So, Mario touched upon this in, in his talk, uh, but I'll ask you, Alvaro, and if anybody else wants to expand on it, what exactly is populism? Is it an ideology? Is it a set of specific policies? Um, is it a style of governance? Uh, what is it? And what are the differences, if any, of the populisms of the left and of the right? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Ian, for that uh, wonderful uh, introduction. Uh, thank you so much to Cato. It's an honor uh, to, to be here. Um, and uh, thank you so much for this wonderful response. I understand this is a very busy night around uh, town, uh, so it's, it's great to have you all here. Um, well, it's very difficult to define populism. Um, I think that's one of its main characteristics. A, a guy you know very well called, uh, called Carlos Sabino, um, from partly from Argentina, partly from, from Venezuela, always says that that's the, the first uh, trait, the first characteristic of populism, that you cannot define it. Um, it has this, this, this quality about it that makes it so easy um, to adopt and so difficult to define. Um, what I think you, you, can, you can say is that in certain circumstances, in certain countries, in certain parts of the world, um, in, under a state of commotion, under a state of distress, uh, which can be uh, uh, caused by war, can be caused by financial disasters, can be, can be caused really by, by any kind of um, very stressful circumstances, 
there appears um, in, in, the, in the body politic um, uh, and, and across society at large, you could probably, probably say, um, something that um, becomes the only uh, response that people are ready um, to, to have to the surrounding circumstances, because something in that offer, something uh, in that proposal um, becomes so powerfully seductive that it um, feels like a, a form of protection. I think it, it feels like a form of, um, I guess, artificial security. So what happened in the last few years was, I think, um, in, in different countries, uh, different things happened, but some of them had to do, of course, with the, with the financial crisis. I think that was a major factor in, 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 in everything that happened. I mean, um, countries uh, in Europe that adopted populism, or at least uh, where large groups of people uh, seemed ready to adopt populism, would not have done so were it not for um, the, the kind of circumstances that arose out of the financial crisis. Um, another issue uh, in our times that I think, and, and as classical liberals, this is something we need to uh, 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 grapple with, uh, which I think has played a very important role, is of course the effects, the economic and social effect of globalization. I mean, I'm not going to defend globalization here because it's, I'm not going to preach to the converted. It, it's, it's a huge and obvious benefit. Uh, as well as a matter of principle. Of course, globalization is, is essentially about, about freedom. But of course, um, as, I mean, if, if, you, if you adopt globalization, um, there is always a, a, a first generation that is um, going to be very exposed to the dislocations that are caused by globalization. Um, I mean, I could, I could produce a lot of statistics here. and I, 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 In the chapter on the United States, I produce some of them to show that, yes, 28 million jobs uh, in, in several manufacturing industries have been lost in the last 20 years in the United States. But I can also show you that many more have been uh, uh, created, of course, in other types of industries. And that even manufacturing industries add uh, uh, $2 trillion in, in, in value to the US economy every year. And that wouldn't say anything to a family um, you know, in which three, four generations have been attached to a particular industry and in which suddenly this generation sees that, uh, that industry uh, simply go, go away and, and, and migrate elsewhere. So um, that's another type of circumstance, I think, uh, and not only in the United States, but in Europe and, and, and elsewhere in the developed world, that has created the conditions for a receptive mind to the appeal of, of populism. In Latin America, of course, it's, I mean, it's even easier to, to, to identify those kinds of, of exceptional circumstances. Uh, social inequality, um, which is something that socialists like to talk about and that, and that, and that uh, classical liberals approach from a different uh, perspective, has undeniably played, played, played a role. Um, because the, the demagoguery that, that, that uh, uh, makes uh, that inequality a uh, essential part of the discussion eventually produces uh, uh, envy across society. And the type of envy that it produces is a, is a violent, is a rancorous envy that uh, I think connects very well with the, with the discourse of, of, of the populace. So essentially, I think that's what, that's what happened. You, you talked about uh, left and, 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 and right. I think, I think you talked about this in, in, in a lot of detail, um, but essentially, Although there are differences, and yes, nationalism is, is very much 
a thing of the right among populists, although there are leftist nationalists as, as well, and, 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 and social justice, uh, so to speak, uh, in the case of, of, of the left, seem to be very different types of, um, of, of, of uh, I don't know if ideologies is, is the word, but in any case, uh, proposals or concepts, uh, essentially both uh, are doing the same thing, which is they are applying a collectivist um, mindset um, to a reality, of course, that uh, cannot fit uh, a collectivist framework. Uh, and if you try to impose a collectivist framework uh, on it, you're going to generate uh, uh, violence. And I think, uh, and I'll end with this, uh, it's a very long answer, I know, but this was a tough question. Um, I think uh, I want to I go back to this very important idea about fiction in the past and in the future. Uh, I always say that populism uh, really feeds on two really important elements. One is myth and the other one is utopia. Myth, of course, is the invention of the past and utopia is the invention of, of, of the future. Um, it's very tough to fight against myth and to fight against utopia because you cannot disprove the past that nobody has seen and you cannot disprove the future that nobody has seen. Um, and if somebody offers you a quicker way to reach utopia, um, than the very uh, tough and, and, and cumbersome uh, way that uh, rational uh, people, uh, hopefully like us, uh, propose, then, then clearly we're at a big disadvantage. Uh, at least when exceptional circumstances create a mindset uh, of the type I've, I've, I've tried to describe. Okay, uh, so populism is, is unfortunately very common in places like Latin America and other parts of the world where Institutions are not strong, and uh, the rule of law uh, is weak. Uh, but it's manifesting itself in places like the United States and other rich countries with a longer tradition of strong institutions. So uh, what would you say is the difference uh, between the populism that has existed in Latin America and the populism that we are seeing uh, manifesting itself, say, in the United States? Me? Anybody? <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to, I mean, thank you for the generous introduction as well, but I just wanted to add that I, I do think we, we should um, address the, the very salient uh, similitudes between the different types of populism, including Latin American version of it and the American version of it. And it's, a, it's basically a rejection of the rule of law. And I mean, you, you'll find uh, all types of populism will, will rebel against it, and, uh, and also they're all, they, they all have these collectivist ideas, and their main enemy is any individualist proposition. And so I guess those could be like two defining qualities of all types of populism, be it left or on the right. I think um, the, the role of the state is, is a crucial uh, factor that unifies all sorts of, of populists. I mean, I've never seen a populist um, who did not believe, at least in modern times, of course, the, the, I mean, this is a complicated discussion because you can go back to the early days of the uh, Republic here in the United States, and there was a type of libertarian populism. Uh, when we talk about Jeffersonian populism, we're not talking about uh, the kind of nationalism that we associate with, 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 with populism today. So when we're talking about populism, we're not talking about Jeffersonian populism, obviously. We're talking about uh, uh, present-day uh, uh, populism. But the role of the state is absolutely crucial. I mean, the nationalists of the right 
uh, want the state to, to become the main uh, agent of, of several things, but essentially protection. Uh, it's a word I mentioned before, I think it's a crucial concept. The idea that we offer protection and security to people who are desperate for protection and security. It's a paternalistic, of course, attitude. And, and the state always plays that role and it, it legitimizes the, the um, excess of, or the excesses of, of, of the state. I mean, people will willingly accept the excesses of the state if they believe the state is protecting you from uh, whatever insecurity is, is, is traumatizing you. And on the left, of course, the state is the agent of social security, uh, uh, of so social justice. Social justice um, is, is a concept, of course, that sounds very, um, I, I guess, innocuous, but really it's, it's pregnant with violence. Because uh, what populists tend to, to do is to, uh, of course, blame a certain elite for the social conditions uh, among the majority and among, among the poor. And if you stem, if you start I mean, for, 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 from there um, and, and you build up a, a discord based on that essential premise, then essentially you're going to end up saying, well, what, what we need to do, of course, is take away from the elite what the elite has robbed, has, 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 has taken away from you. And social justice can only be performed, therefore, by uh, the state. The state is the agent of social justice. So whether the state is protecting you from economic injustice or protecting you from uh, uh, foreign threats of any, of any kind, in other words, whether it's protecting you uh, from the enemies of the left or protecting you from the enemies of, of the right, they're both doing exactly the same thing. The state is legitimizing its own tendency um, to, to go beyond the limits uh, that are uh, uh, reasonable. Uh, and I think that's one of the key things that they have in common today. Every populist believes in the state as the agent of some kind of protection or some kind of, uh, of justice. Um. Populism needs to create enemies in order to justify uh, everything that is going bad in a in a in a society. You know, so the but the enemy that populism invent uh, are different. It depends very much of the of the condition of the of the country. You know, um, populism in, in Latin America will say, well. Uh, we are poor because there are rich. The richness of them is our poverty. Uh, uh, imperialism is the enemy. We are poor because imperialism is a great obstacle no, for our development and, and our prosperity. Um, the, the Catalans who are independent is what they say. Uh, Spain robbed us. España nos roba. Spain robbed us. Uh, we are poor because Spain is rich and is exploiting us. Well, in the United States, the United States wouldn't say the enemies are the rich. No. But what do they say? The Mexicans are taking advantage of us. The Chinese are taking advantage of us. We, we cannot prosper as rapidly as we need because Everybody's taking advantage of us, you know. Well, so you create enemies that justify the kind of policies that uh, push you towards catastrophe, you know. So I, I think this, 
you you live in a in a in a in a world of, of fiction with 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 populism, and uh, but a fiction that, that does not present itself as fiction as in literature. That is why the fictions in literature are very positive, and help us to to to, to improve, and fictions in politics in in are absolutely negative and destructive. You know? So uh, those of us who've been watching this play out in the United States, including some of the things you just said, feel like we're watching a movie that we've seen before, except that this is the United States. It's not Latin America. It has institutions that work, we think, or maybe not. Uh, what is your opinion on the threat of populism in the United States, how big of a threat it is. Because in Latin America, if somebody leads a populist movement, they're explicitly against the rule of law, against the, the elite, and they violate those laws before and after they're in power with no consequences. Uh, they're not held accountable by institutions. That's not really the case in the United States. But there but are symptoms. Maybe not yet. There are but symptoms. Maybe. There are what symptoms do you think about, very, about the threat very of worrying in the United States? Well, the, the, the difference is that uh, if populism uh, takes over a Latin American country, the effects are very negative for this country and maybe its neighbors. But the problem is if a country like the United States becomes populist, the effects would repercute all over the world. So the danger is for everybody, not only for the Americans, you know? I, I, um, I think we've talked about this before, maybe even at an event here a, a few years ago, uh, an event uh, on, on immigration. When you look at the history of the United States, um, it's very fascinating to see that some of the themes that have been playing out in recent years um, many of them, of course, uh, uh, causing the, the, the rise of populist ideas and populist uh, proposals, um, are, are nothing new. Uh, it's been a recurring phenomenon uh, throughout the history of the United States. Uh, immigration is a, is a case in point. People, I, I would say, inside the United States as, as well as outside the United States, have this notion that the U.S. was always a country of immigrants and therefore the, the anti-immigration uh, uh, stance um, that's become fashionable today is, is something that came out of the blue, that, that's really uh, an anomaly. That's not true at all. Anti-immigration has been a powerful sentiment, both uh, throughout civil society and in the body politic, throughout the history of the United States. Every generation has had important influential groups and, and people and activists um, trying to fight uh, uh, immigration. Uh, of course, this has taken a more violent dimension at certain points, uh, a less violent dimension at others. Uh, but, but nationalism, nativism is a recurring theme throughout the, 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 the Republic. But what is different about the United States is that institutions are stronger. So um, the system has kind of built-in defenses against uh, populism that Latin American countries lack, at least most of them. Perhaps Chile is, is a, a, a different case because there's been an attempt 
I would guess a milder attempt at populism than elsewhere in Latin America, but nonetheless an attempt at populism in recent years. And the middle class reacted against it in Chile. And what's going to happen this coming Sunday is, I think, a manifestation of that reaction. So perhaps Chile is a, a different case. But in other countries of Latin America, the reaction is always very slow. You need to destroy the country before the country reacts against populism. Well, it's not the case of the United States. Uh, the, the system here has, has I think, a, a, a much greater capacity to respond and to respond fairly immediately and, and more effectively. That's not going to... Uh, of course, uh, create conditions for this phenomenon to simply wither away. It's not going to happen because, as, as I say, it's a recurring phenomenon throughout U.S. history. But I think it's, I, I'm, I'm encouraged to see what the reaction against populism uh, has been in the United States in the last few years. I mean, it, it just tells us that uh, civil society here is much stronger. There's a much greater awareness of, of the danger of isolating the United States from the rest of the, of the world if that is even possible, which I, I doubt it very much, but anyway, an attempt at isolating the United States from the rest of the, of, of the world. And, and the institutions tend to be much stronger. Of course, that has the effect of paralyzing uh, the decision-making progress. People get very uh, uh, bored with Washington, where, 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 I mean, the swamp doesn't produce any uh, decisions uh, because nobody agrees with anybody else. But there's a wisdom behind that. There's a certain wisdom behind that, uh, making it very difficult for politicians to t make decisions uh, is perhaps one of the great legacies of the founding fathers of this country. Gabriela comes from a country which was victim of a very great demagogue and populist, who is Correa. So maybe she yeah, can give a, us a testimony. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. A, a tragic case of populism. Every Latin American populist country has a, is a different kind of populism. Like you said in, in your remarks, it takes different forms. And there's one very unique aspect of Ecuador's uh, populism is that the country is dollarized, mm -hmm. actually runs on the American dollar. Uh, how has that uh, worked out there? Well, it's a very difficult marriage because, you know, uh, Rudy Dornbusch and Sebastian Edwards uh, have described populism on the economic side as being uh, based on deficit financing and inflationary monetary policies. So how do you practice uh, classic traditional populism in a country that doesn't have its own currency? We don't have an independent national monetary policy. So. Uh, it becomes very limited. The power politicians have to wreak havoc. I mean, populist politicians in the case of Correa and now uh, his successor, Lenin Moreno, is, is severely limited because uh, we have no inflation. Inflation is a problem of the past. We have been dollarized since January of 2000. Uh, the, there are like subsequent two or three generations of Ecuadorians that uh, have zero tolerance for inflation because they have never lived with it. This is something that sounds like uh, foreign to Argentinians and Venezuelans that have coexisted with inflation all of their lives. Uh, we have no longer have that, and stability has allowed businesses to plan for the long term and has also developed a sort of saving culture and a new appreciation for private property. Because you know when you have inflationary monetary policies, all consumers and all the actors in the economy have an incentive to consume rather than to save. Uh, in Ecuador, that changed radically. And so Correa came to power uh, in 2007 with this in place. 
And it's probably what has saved us from becoming uh, Venezuela or from even getting to the point where Argentina got to two-digit inflation. Uh, because this was the number one enemy that Correa could not get rid of during his whole 10 years in power. I mean, he could uh, destroy the independence of the other organs of the state, but uh, even though he uh, complained about it for 10 years, he could never get rid of dollarization, because dollarization is like a national consensus. And whenever he wanted to control the economy, he would have to justify its the government's intervention as a defense of dollarization. So the government's very protectionist, like populist governments tend to be in Latin America on the economic front. So whenever he wants to put up new trade barriers, he'll say, we have to do this to defend dollarization, which is totally not true, as in the case we can see in the case of Panama and El Salvador, which are also dollarized. It's not necessary to have protectionist um, trade policy. In, in fact, it's, it's totally against the economy. But uh, this was uh, the strongest protection uh, that Ecuadorians has, had over the past decade. It has allowed deposits, bank deposits and savings to grow in spite of a uh, toxic mix of economic policies on the trade front, on the labor market. And uh, even, even now that we're going through a third year of an economic recession, our, um, our recession has been very mild compared to that of other Latin American countries that are commodity dependent and that have their own currencies, because we are not subject to exchange rate risk, and so everything's more stable. Uh, even countries that didn't have uh, so, such a strong populist government like Brazil had a much more uh, harder downfall after the boom of commodities. So um, it's a very different kind of populism because it has been very politically costly for Correa, and now for Lenin Moreno, to raise public expenditures because every time they do it, it's very easy to see. Public finances have become more transparent, and the, they only have two ways of doing it, which is either raising taxes or increasing the public debt, which investors and people in general foresee as a sure uh, sign of future higher taxes. So uh, it's been, uh, I mean, it's not a cure-all. Dollarization will not cure all evils. Uh, it's not a guarantee of excellent economic performance, but it sure is a strong protection against the worst evils of populism. It's an interesting irony because the, the dollar, which has been uh, seriously mishandled in the United States for decades and decades, has been a blessing for, for Ecuador, I guess. <laughs> I mean, as long as the politicians cannot manipulate the yeah. money, because it was a, a surefire way of uh, transferring wealth. And, you know, the dollarization has become like an island of rule of law in the country because the dollar is the same for everyone. And I see some ben Venezuelan friends here, and I know that in Venezuela there are different types of exchange rates depending on your political connections. Uh, this, this used to happen in, in Ecuador when we had the Sucre, and it, it no longer happens. I mean, the dollar is the same for all Ecuadorians. It doesn't matter because you don't have to go to the central bank to ask for dollars, which is great because the central bank is always uh, in countries with uh, weak institutions such as Ecuador controlled by the executive power. The populist uh, wave in Latin America, it's clear, crested years ago. And uh, populism has been rejected in Argentina, in Brazil. Those leftist ideas, uh, populist ideas have been rejected in Peru, probably this weekend in, in Chile. Uh, but at the same time, we're seeing in places like Mexico, uh, Lopez Obrador, a leftist de demagogic 
candidate is leading the polls. We see in Brazil a new phenomenon, this, this uh, Mr. Bolsonaro, who is uh, the, the Trump of Brazil, who has come out of nowhere and yet now he's second uh, in the polls. And uh, in Colombia, the former FARC uh, guerrilla leader, Dimochenko, could be a presidential candidate. And uh, people, some people are afraid uh, that he, he, he might have some success. So the question I have uh, is, what do, you, what do you have to say about the decline of populism in Latin America and its possible return? Well, me? Who? E, anybody. Okay. Uh, well, I think that's the story of the last two or three years. I mean, the story is the defeat of populism throughout Latin America with, with one, uh, potentially one big exception, which is, which is Mexico, and much will depend on how the U.S. handles the negotiation with Mexico and, and Canada in the next few days, weeks, and, 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 and months. Uh, I, I, I hope they don't um, make too many mistakes in that negotiation, because if they do, they will create a backlash in Mexico. And of course, the, the nationalists in Mexico and Lopez Obrador will become the uh, most important nationalist uh, in that cause. Uh, will, will of course have a field day with, with that, and, and, and that could be very significant in the, in the next elections. But, I mean, putting that aside, um, it's a good story. I mean, it's, it's, it's happening. Um, Argentina and Brazil, I mean, Brazil is a very fascinating case. People are putting a lot of, uh, placing a lot of attention on, 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 on Argentina, and rightly so, because great things are beginning to happen in Argentina. But it's becoming more difficult to understand what's happening in Brazil, because of course, the headlines are completely dominated by, um, by the corruption scandal. Uh, but reforms have been taking place in, in Brazil. Uh, several very difficult reforms, not necessarily popular reforms, under an extremely unpopular government, of course, um, whose very continuity is, 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 is you know, in, in danger. Uh, but things have been happening and moving in the right direction, and, and, and a certain amount of rationalization is, is beginning to... To, to take hold of, 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 of the business of government um, in, in Brazil, slowly, gradually, but, but really, but truly. Um, in, in other countries where the populists are still in government, they are hugely unpopular. 80%, uh, 90% of Venezuelans uh, reject and repudiate uh, Maduro. Um, Evo Morales in, in Bolivia was, was, was defeated when he tried to, um, of course, um, uh, make it legally possible for him yet again uh, to be re-elected. Of course, uh, he said he would abide by the result of a referendum. Of course, he, he hasn't, and now he's trying uh, again. But, but again, a majority of Bolivians are, are, are profoundly opposed to the idea of him becoming an eternal president. So, so that's a really encouraging story. I mean, in some cases, they've, been managed, I mean, they've managed to throw out the populace from government. In others, not yet. But at least we know that a majority, a large majority of, of Latin Americans in those countries uh, repudiate and reject uh, uh, populism. And, and they're now beginning to embrace very different ideas. So, so all of that, I think, is, 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 is hopeful, is encouraging. Um, of course, uh, that said, if, if, if López Obrador wins in Mexico next, next year, it'll be a catastrophe. Mexico is a very important, very influential country, yeah. and, and he will become... A, a, of course, a, a, a crusader for his ideas throughout the rest of the region. I can easily see him become uh, an internationalist uh, the day after the election 
which will be won by a nationalist if he wins. So I think, I really hope the U.S. handles this negotiation very carefully. Uh, and of course, they will uh, be very mindful of their own interests, but uh, I would argue that it's in their interest uh, not to produce a Lopez Obrador uh, victory in, in, in Mexico. No? It was, it was, I am a, a bit optimistic about Brazil. Yeah. I think what, what has happened in Brazil is very, very interesting. Something totally new in Latin America, a popular movement, uh, very, really popular and important, um, and this movement was not for revolution, was not for socialism, was not for uh, against democracy. On the contrary, it was a popular movement against corruption. What the Brazilians wanted, mobilizing as they, they did, was to, to purify the democratic institutions which were completely taken by the, the corruption. And at the same time, they were, they were helped by young judges, very courageous, very pure, very decent, who also wanted to purify the democratic institutions in Brazil. And look what is happening in Brazil for the first time in a Latin American country. People from the right, people from the left are in prison because they were uh, uh, stealing the public money. And uh, um, I think it's a kind of regeneration of, of the democratic institutions. And this is the first time that has this magnitude in a Latin American country. So I think it's, uh, it's very, very, very interesting. And if in, in Brazil, the, the, the evolution of the, of the movement is towards the enrichment of the of democracy, that will be a great example for the rest of the, of the continent. Corruption has played a large role in, in all of populism. Uh, the, the beginning of populism, when the populists come in and, and denounce corruption, and that's, that was their calling card. I remember in 1999, we traveled to Caracas uh, for a conference that Rocio Guijaro, who's here, organized. And that was the, the year that uh, Hugo Chavez came to power. And you said, let's not make the fight against corruption turn into a fight against liberty itself. Unfortunately, uh, that's what's happened. We were talking uh, before this about how uh, we should, you said, we should put a monument up to Odebrecht because of the corruption scandals all over Latin America have forced these issues. And for the first time, this kind of thing is happening in Brazil, which is amazed all of Latin America, but powerful people in other parts of Latin America, former presidents uh, of Peru, are either in jail or they're about to go to jail or they're in exile. Uh, or this even is the current vice president of Ecuador is in jail. The current vice president of Ecuador is in jail because of this. This is, this is a, a, to me, a sign of, of progress and of a strengthening of the rule of law. Uh, certainly in Brazil, by the way, we have a paper that we're publishing, the Cato Institute is publishing on this next week, uh, Corruption and the Rule of Law in Brazil. Uh, and it seems to me a, a very positive example of progress, but also of how corruption becomes so widespread under populism, much more than is to, the case before it, it, it uh, takes power. I don't know, Gabriela, if you saw that, uh, occur in, in Ecuador? Of course, we, I mean, we've uh, had the uh, fortune of having great 
uh, whistleblowers, brave whistleblowers in our country, despite our uh, one of the most draconian communications law that was implemented in 2013. Uh, they have been uh, recently vindicated because of the Odebrecht scandal, and thanks to the leaks from uh, the, uh, not to the leaks, but to the publication of the files from the proceedings in Brazil and also in the United States relating to this case. And this has derived and uh, this has resulted in our vice president, our acting vice president being put in jail. He's been in jail for more than a month and he's being investigated for this case. And also there are two ministers uh, in what we call a preventive jail, which is a figure uh, really uh, abused in, in many Latin American countries. Uh, but in, in this case, it's because, um, I mean, they're pursuing a case against them. And this is really incredible because even six months ago, we thought this was impossible. This was like uh, the vice president was one of the most powerful men in the country, the number two guy. I mean, the number one guy is Correa, who's in, used to be Correa, who's in, in exile in Belgium right now. And uh, the, the press and all whistleblowers are increasingly pointing the finger at him, which is really unbelievable because this would have been uh, impossible due to the self-censorship that was so strong uh, when, when he was still in power until May of this year. And uh, the, the system worked in such a way that it was orchestrated from the top echelons of government. So you had the controller of government, uh, government expenditures involved in, in, in all these uh, schemes. He basically charged bribes for not reporting uh, misdeeds in the execution of public works. And he was supposed to be doing the opposite, controlling the proper execution of public works. You also have the involvement of the attorney general, and you also have the involvement of, like I said, the vice president. The president signed emergency decrees that made all these shenanigans possible. And so you have a whole structure uh, to commit these crimes against public administration. And what's surprising is not that this happened, but the fact that people are uh, protesting against it and pressuring uh, public authorities to pursue these investigations. Mm -hmm. So there's so there's good news going on, and the the threat is still looming. Uh, is there anything in the last uh, few minutes of this discussion that you would recommend that uh, people keep a particular eye out, depending on the societies or countries that they live in, in order to uh, uh, fight this? this threat of populism, uh, it seems to me that no country is immune. Some countries are better situated at, at uh, defending themselves against this. Um, on balance, are you optimistic, pessimistic? It depends on the country. What are your, what are your conclusions about where, we, where the world is I'm, today? I'm, I'm very optimistic. Um, I think, uh, I mean, if we don't win, uh, you, you never win this, 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 this battle of ideas uh, on, on a permanent basis. Uh, will, the world would be very boring if you did. But you can win it transitorily. You can, you can win it for a few decades. You can, and then in the space of those decades, you can, you can put in place the right kind of policies and, and, and make life so much better for so many people. So I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cause worth fighting for. Uh, if we don't defeat populists today with the, uh, I mean, amazing examples of failure that we have all around us. Uh, if, if we can't win this one, we can't win anything. I mean, it, we, it will be, you know, we'd be so incompetent. Um, we have now uh, in, in, in place not, not only the bad examples, of course, which have produced such an uh, amazing array of uh, 
examples that we can uh, draw from uh, to, to, to illustrate our ideas. But we also have now uh, the best allies we can possibly have, the people. We have the people. Uh, the Argentinians just proved it, the Brazilians proved it, the Chileans will prove it on Sunday, and so on and so forth. We have millions and millions and millions of Latin Americans um, who want to get rid of this demagoguery, who want to get rid of a, an interventionist state, who want to get rid of uh, institutions that are easily uh, controlled by uh, certain elites. Uh, people want the rule of law, they want equality before the law, they want private property, uh, they want free commerce, they want free trade. That's where they're craving for. Uh, many millions of people for the first time in a long time, um, simply because they have suffered the horrendous consequences of the opposite uh, kind of uh, policies. So I think it's, it's, it's a great context, social context and political context, uh, for us to come back and make the case once again. Um, and if we can't, uh, you know, win this one, it's, it's just, it's, I mean, it really speaks very badly of, of, of us. I think the, the, the great things are happening, great things will be happening in the next few, uh, few years. I'm just very worried about Mexico right now. I think that's, uh, that's something we really have to be careful with. I think that's what we keep our eye on. Yeah, we really have to keep our eye on, on Mexico. But, but elsewhere, very, very fascinating things are happening, and I think we, we have uh, tremendous uh, uh, allies right now. Mario? Um, this question was put to Karl Popper, the last time that I saw him in Spain, six months before his death. Um, and, uh, and I remember more or less uh, his answer. He said, uh, well, it is true that many things go badly in the world today. Um, but each time that you become pessimistic, you should remember that never, never in history, in this long history of humankind, we have been better than today. Today we are so lucky by comparison with all the past periods in, in, in history. Um, and I think we can say now with more conviction than Popper, exactly the same. Look, communism, which was so terrible menace for the, for the world, for freedom, for the culture of freedom, has disappeared, practically has disappeared. No more communism. Communism is uh, something of the, of the past. Uh, look what is going on in Latin America. When I was young, Latin America was plenty of military dictators from one extreme to the, to the other of the, of the continent. The exceptions were Chile, Costa Rica, Uruguay, and the rest was, look, now. Now we have dictatorships, Cuba, Venezuela, and the rest are democracies, some uh, corrupt, some uh, very inefficient, uh, uh, but we have governments born out of elections and uh, and what is more more important i think there is a conviction widely shared in in latin america in favor of democracy as the only way in which we can fight po uh, underdevelopment and 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 poverty 
in a, in a successful way. This is an extraordinary progress by, 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 with, the, with the past. Look what is happening in Europe. The construction of the European Union is something extraordinary, really extraordinary. It's something that has given peace for 70 years already uh, to, to a, a, a continent that never in history had 70 years of, of peace as, as, as today. And I think for, for us uh, liberals, uh, Democrats, uh, our, our ideas have succeeded. They are there. We know now what, has, what are the, the policies that produce prosperity, that produce peace, uh, coexistence. Uh, we, we know exactly what to do in order to overcome the great enemies, uh, poverty, uh, violence, wars. And so I think we, we should be optimistic. We, we, we don't have the right to be pessimistic in the world in which we live. I think the, the, what is positive what is much, much more important than what is negative. Gabriela? Well, I, I would, um, uh, since you're both optimistic, I just have to <laughs> add a grain of salt to that optimism, <laughs> that we can never uh, forget the uh, heavy legacy in Latin America of that eternal search for redeemers, you know, Enrique Krause published a book a few years back that I thought was great. And it's like, it's very much part of Latin American cultures that we're looking for that uh, savior. And, and that's part of the fiction too. You know, they're the heroes and villains. And, and there's this strong appeal in, in I, I would say, most Latin American countries for that. And also, we don't have a, a, a legacy, a, a good legacy of, of rule of law. I mean, the United States had three centuries of uh, some experience with the rule of law before becoming an independent country. We, we, had experience, uh, we, we have a, a heavy legacy from the Spanish empire, which was an absolutist empire of conquest, not an empire of commerce. And so we do have that uh, going against us. Uh, so, so that gives us still a lot of work to do, which is good for us because we have a lot of work. Yeah. Thank you, Gabriela. Well, I'm afraid that we've, we've run out of time. And on that balanced note, uh, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us tonight. Uh, I'd like to thank our, our sponsors for putting, helping to put this uh, together and make it possible. I'd like to thank Alvaro and Gabriela for joining us, and especially to Mario for being such a good friend. Uh, to those of us who are working on this every day, and such a good friend to Cato, uh, which has been the case for such a long time. You're always welcome back here. Uh, thanks for your optimistic remarks, too. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.